I needed the so what on Kubernetes. It's time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast that helps you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and organization for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm Matt Stratton. Today, we're going to talk all about learning, learning how to learn, learning how to teach, and all sorts of fun brain-type things. But before we get into that, a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by CircleCI. Designed for modern software teams, CircleCI's continuous integration and delivery platform helps developers push code with confidence. Trusted by thousands of companies, from four-person startups to Fortune 500 businesses, CircleCI helps teams take their software from idea to delivery quickly, safely, and at scale. Visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash CircleCI to learn why high-performing DevOps teams use CircleCI to automate and accelerate their CI-CD pipelines. This episode is brought to you by Container Solutions, a consultancy that specializes in cloud-native transformation. To help you navigate the ever-changing cloud-native landscape, Container Solutions is running a series of free online events with well-known industry experts such as Matthew Skelton and Victoria Morgan-Smith as part of a newly launched publication called WTF is Cloud Native. To find out more and sign up, visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash Container Solutions. The worst thing about the Arrested DevOps podcast is when it ends. You're left wondering what to do next. What are you going to listen to on your commute home? How do you occupy your time when walking the dog? What are you going to listen to during the quarterly all-hands meeting? But fear not, dear listener, there is a solution. You need to subscribe to Software Defined Talk right now. It's a weekly podcast that recaps all the news in cloud computing, DevOps, and enterprise software. The hosts, Kote, Matt Ray, and Brandon Wichard, will keep you up to date on all things cloud while offering tips on how to optimize your Costco haul and how to PowerPoint. It's a fun, free-flowing conversation that will keep you entertained and informed. What are you waiting for? Subscribe to the podcast today by visiting softwaredefinedtalk.com or by searching for Software Defined Talk in your favorite podcast app. I'm really excited to have uh, this guest. I'm, I'm also, as I, I say this often, but I sit here and I'm like, how did it take so long to get this person on our show? But I'm glad it happened. You know, the past is the past, but we're here. But joining me today to talk about this really important topic is Shelby Spees. Hi, thank you so much, Matt. I'm I'm really excited to be here. Um, I'm Shelby. I'm a developer advocate at Honeycomb. And I used to be an English teacher. I've been teaching and tutoring since high school. Um, and it's just something that's very, very front of mind for me. Um, and so when I changed careers and, and went into tech and started learning programming and stuff, um, just the whole, the whole experience has been just how do we make this better and more accessible and more approachable for everybody? I think there's a lot to unpack about this idea of how do we learn and then also how do we teach and those go together. And we've had episodes in the past. We had Alice Patel on before talking about this and a very long time ago, one of the first episodes that Sasha Rosenbaum was on, we kind of touched on this, which I think just illustrates how important it is to continue to talk about. But today I think we're going to dig into slightly a little bit of a different idea and like uh, the genesis of this topic was, uh, was it last week or so Shelby mm-hmm. was tweeting about a talk idea that she wanted to put together about this. And I said, well, if you want to start to work on it, you know, we're recording a podcast next week. Yeah. So do you want to kind of talk a little bit about the, the, you know, kind of the nuggets of where this came from? Yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of it is, um, I think a lot of this started last year. I mean, it's been a it's been a topic forever. But last year there was a big discussion on Twitter about like what what makes an SRE? What does a junior SRE look like? Is there such a thing? Do you have to reach a certain level um to become an SRE and like do do you need an ops background? Um and all of this stuff. And so, you know, it it started me on this on on this like fork of of like this thought process of just like how do we grow SREs and how do we grow sort of production um, engineers who live in production, software engineers who live in production? Um, and me, as a, I'm a developer advocate for observability 
to, um, and, and production excellence tool. And so I'm all about like, I want more people to live in production. And I, I think observability helps us, um, you know, we, we talk about, we want production to be a friendlier place. Um, and so th- there was this whole, there was this whole big discussion, um, something that, like my CTO charity major says is, is you can't, you don't become a senior engineer until you've like broken production, you've taken it down. Right. Um, and you, you need that sort of ops empathy and experience in order to build better systems, um, and write better code to, to support those systems. And so it's, it's this big sort of like messy conversation that I don't, I don't want to be prescriptive at all about what, um, Make somebody an SRE per se, or um, what makes somebody senior. But I, but I think like right now we're in this period of tech where we have a lot of senior people who, um, who like you know cut their teeth on in actual server rooms and crawling under desks and plugging in actual network cables. And then we have a lot of people coming in who have never seen a server, you know, like server rack, who've never considered like, um, that was my experience is I'm, I am a cloud native engineer because I have never worked on anything that was, um, that was like on-prem. And so, um, for people where ops is, is this abstraction, um, how do we grow them and 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 teach them the the ops mindset that I think is very very important? It's how we it's it's how we deliver software. Like early in my career, um, you know, I was I was building desktop apps and I was building some like CLI tools and stuff. And then there was one tool that I I just did. I ended up sort of taking ownership of the project and we didn't release for um any new versions the entire time that I was like running the project because I was a year into my career and I didn't really know how to, how to release a a Python package or any of that. Um, And as a story I've told before, and, and so like, um, and I, I realized like, wow, all this work I'm doing to make like, you know, pretty maintainable code is meaningless if I can't get it into the hands of users. And so then I like went down this, you know, career path of, of DevOps and SRE sort of stuff, where it was like, like, you know, how do I make sure that the code I write is, is available to people? And I think, I think that's a hurdle that, you know, all the, all the folks who are coming into tech now and doing um, boot camps and, um, you know, online classes and, or even like CS students who are in traditional schools, how do we teach them the the importance of deployment and maintenance and sort of long term like software life cycle stuff? I think that that touches on something that's really kind of hard, and that is that you know experience is the best teacher. I'm I'm mm-hmm. saying that with air quotes. I don't want to say that as a law of the universe, mm-hmm. but. We do learn from experience, but it's also unfair to say like, well, if you don't have, you know, then that can get us into how do you get experience without doing, Mm -hmm. you can't do unless you have Mm -hmm. experience. So I think there are ways we can think about learning that give us the equivalent. Like you don't have to break production for a major bank to learn Mm -hmm. the same lesson, right? You know, of quote unquote breaking production. So how do we abstract Mm -hmm. to that? Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's also additionally hard for those of us who've had the experiences to pivot our frame of reference to people coming in from a different path. Mm-hmm. And what you were talking about, about having ops as an abstraction, it actually reminded me of something from quite a while ago uh, in in kind of a pre-DevOps world where I was I was running a tech ops team and we had kind of our standard tech screen. And I had built the tech screen in a way that the idea was the first few questions were supposed to be kind of, you know, softball, easy questions. Cause I wanted to have the person feel at ease. You know, you don't want to have them, you, you never want to start a thing like that and feel like you started off badly. So my team and I talked, we're like, what's a really good, you know, kind of softball. We're like, well, like raid levels, like everybody knows that, like you should totally know that. And as we were moving into the, you know, pre-cloud, but heavy virtualization era, there were a lot of great candidates who didn't know that because they only worked in VMs. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to deal with hardware. They didn't Mm -hmm. have to know that. 
And uh, it, it really surpri- took me by surprise that what I thought was like, oh, well, yeah, that's the thing that's going to put you at ease is we had candidates where they had the exact opposite thing. And so that's, I think, when we, and we, I, I, I've personally seen this with a lot of content that I read when I'm trying to learn something. And I don't come from a development background. I come from an ops background. So I, I, can, I can write code that nobody should ever have to see but it might be able to get the job done. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I'll, I'll look at something and there's just sort of a whole lot of assumptions that are made. Like you understand, like, this is how I write this. And a company I worked for, uh, I remember I was trying to learn the API actually for the tech screen. Mm-hmm. And so it made me look at the documentation. I'm like, so but this is a tool that's actually the most of the consumers of this tool are people that are operationally focused. Mm-hmm. But the documentation is 100% written by devs and for devs. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so if I'm in, I mean, I'll throw it because it got better. It's fine. It's no shade, but it was pager duty. Right. So that mm-hmm. was the thing. I'm like, a lot of the people who are going to be trying to write an integration into pager duty mm-hmm. are probably not full time developers. Right. They, yeah. they might very, some of them are, and that's great. And I think there should be more. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them are, you know, system engineers, you know, ops folks, SREs, whatever, who don't live in, don't necessarily have that background, but they just want to know how to make a thing work. And when you operate with this assumption that you'll understand this about JavaScript already going into it, mm-hmm. this is a big part of why everybody tells me Gatsby is so great and Gatsby drives me up a wall because it assumes, and because it's what it's built for, it's built for a React developer who wants to write a static site, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So understand that when you're recommending Gatsby to people, you know, for mm-hmm. example, I, I think, like, I think you touched on a lot of this, this sort of, it sort of makes my brain explode. Um, how even there's no linear, like, uh, there's no like linear path to like software practitioner knowledge. There's so many different domains and directions that, that, so like, even, you know, even someone who, like like the 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 tech screen that you talked about like you can't expect someone with the same amount of experience even if even in similar companies or similar roles to be able to answer the questions that you're asking because it's, there's just so much knowledge out there um and i think that's just like a sort of universal truth of of working in tech is not only is there like just so much information out there that we can't possibly hold all that in our heads but it's constantly growing it's constantly changing things are constantly being deprecated you know i don't know if you've ever had the experience of like you know looking at a stack overflow answer that's from like 2013 and you know f- like five major versions ago and um drives me nuts um and and so the you can't expect people to like you benefit even the most senior and experienced people when you uh, sort of build from first principles and build from this like clean slate um and i i think there's trade-offs like i don't think every documentation page needs to start from like this is a for loop but um there's a certain amount of of that that you know we're trying to do and on the sort of internal docs team at Honeycomb and something I try to do with my tech writing in general is here's what I expect you to know about before you read this documentation um, because it it never helps your reader and I mean I've I've experienced this so many times when I'm like going through a tutorial and ex- and it just you know, it says like, you know, do these three easy steps. And they're not easy to me because I have no frame of reference for it. They're just, it's just buzzwords, it's jargon. And, and so just that's where the, you know, learning how to teach part comes in for me is, is being very mindful of your audience and, and being, being very like clear upfront, like being very mindful of your audience and stating upfront who you expect your intended audience to be. I, I think, and it's going to be, I think, a common theme through this conversation is that there are multiple different learning styles and everything. So what I'm about to say is how it applies to me and how I think about it. Mm-hmm. But I've found as I've had to learn things, I learn them much, much better when I have a problem to solve. Mm-hmm. So like when I was at Chef and we came out with Habitat, I had the hardest time getting my arms around why Habitat was helpful. And part of the problem was a lot of the use cases every now and then they come up with were certain examples. I'm like, I've never had that problem. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was reaching, I was trying to find a problem I had to solve that I could solve with Habitat because then I would get it because that's how I learned config management. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I, I think is really helpful 
is when your tutorials or whatever, they, they need to tell a little bit of a story. Mm -hmm. So, so often we write tutorials that are how to do a function, mm -hmm. but I might not even understand why I need to, to accomplish that function. So, you know, like I'll look at it and it'll be like, this is how you use. And by the way, anybody that I talk about, I'm saying in high regard, you know, just things I've seen, but you know, I'm giving examples, but it might be, here's how to use Pulumi to configure your EC2 bucket or your S3, EC2 bucket, Corey will kill me, your S3 bucket. But if I'm someone who does like, I, but why do I need to do that? That's not mm -hmm. a problem, right? That's almost mm -hmm. like hello world. Yep. You know, and I'll tell you like so many things I see, they're like, well, here's how to do this thing, but not in the context of a thing anybody ever actually has to do. Mm -hmm. So I that, like journey tutorials that are like, okay, so you're a developer and you need to deploy this application, which does this thing. And here's the problem. The problem is mm -hmm. it has to live somewhere and you don't want to have to do that by hand. So let's do that together. Mm -hmm. Right. And yes, that's a lot more work. It's not just writing API documentation. So you're not alone. I'm very much the same way. And I think it's almost a failing uh, f for me as a developer advocate that like I need to have experienced the thing before I can really talk about it with any sort of like fidelity. Um, and maybe not, but I, I, I very, I do lean very heavily on my own personal experience and I'm trying to, you know, glean, glean that knowledge more from, from our, our users and, and from the community, um, and just people's experiences reading, you know, reading about public, um, incidents and things like that. The thing you're, you're, you're getting at is something that I was very, very lucky to learn early in my career. Um, my second internship, um, I was, at the end of it, you're supposed to give, they call it an intern outbrief presentation. Um, basically, just like, what did you do? And also, so what? What was the organizational impact of what you did? And um, it was it was a very wild story because um, most interns just, you know, present to like their immediate managers, maybe a level up. Um, but it turns out the week before my presentation, um, it, me, me and one other um, intern on, on in the department were supposed to present at the same time. And a week before we were supposed to present, the CEO of the company was like, hey, it's been a while since I've been to an outbrief presentation. Um, when's the next one? And it turns out it was ours. Um, and so... And and this is a company where the CEO is a level seven, um, and I was a level zero as an intern. Um, and so now you have six six levels of management freaking out, like, how are we going to get these interns to present to this this CEO um, out of the blue? Um, she she ended up not being able to make it, but we got up to our level, I think, level five manager, um, and it was um, and so. The um, people who regularly present to like three star generals were coaching us on how to give this presentation and how to write it and update our slides and like how to stand in the room and, and like all of this stuff. And so I got sort of a, a very um, crash course on on talking about organizational impact from a very early point in my career. And I brought that with me to like later jobs. Um, I, I don't think I'm I'm 100 percent perfect at it all the time, but it's something that I think as engineers, we can get we we can do a lot to get better at that. Um, mapping our work to the the like how that moves the needle for the organization, and also I think like our tech leadership, um, you know, from the C CTO level, helping map like the the stuff that's happening at the organizational level down to like our day to day boots on the ground, um, you know, implementation work. And, and so I think, I think that's something really we like, if, if you're going to work on your, your teaching skills and your communication skills as an engineer, that, that so what question is, is one that just like echoes in my head all the time. Like, why, why should I care? Um, and, and I think that's something that's really, really useful for approaching tutorials and approaching teaching because I'm, I'm the same way. Like I, I need, like I said, I need that context. I have a, a colleague who cannot follow a tutorial unless it's like she, she knows exactly the problem that she's trying to solve in the context that she's trying to solve it in. Right. Um, and, and I remember there's, there's like those um, SRE checklist, you know, like gists and, and thing repos out there. It's like, here's all the things you need to learn to be counted as an SRE or as a, a backend engineer or whatever. And it's like, I don't like, like, like I needed the, so what on Kubernetes, I needed the, so what on load balancers. Like I read the S SRE book back in 20, 
17. Uh, I didn't know what a load balancer was. and I didn't really get why you needed one. Um, and so like, I, I think, I think that's, that's something that we tend to skip. Um, and I think it's okay. Like, I, like I said earlier, like, this is all me thinking out loud. Um, I think it's okay to skip that like first principles stuff, but I think we need more. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced this where you go to like a, a SaaS website or a product website and it doesn't tell you what problem it's solving. It's just like, we do this and we do that. And the use cases aren't really like, they don't even help you that much. Well, and like you said, and then the response is so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that that happens you know, not just on like paid products, but also like, like open source, you know, product pages and repositories. And I, I, I go and look at some like library. It's like, why do I care about this library, you know, over like the alternative and standard lib or whatever. Um, and so answering, answering that question, I think is, is really, really valuable. And I think it'll help a lot of people. There's some thoughts around having intentionality with what you're teaching and how you're teaching it. And I think that's, you know, you sort of talked about like developing the skill of, of organizational communication, mm-hmm. right? And I think there's a lot of us, I think it's very easy. I shouldn't say very easy. I think it's very natural to just sort of devolve onto like kind of just trying to do it. And mm-hmm. I used to kind of joke when I was younger about like, I like, I don't really know what all the rules of grammar are, but I can tell when something's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, or same thing with spelling. That's just sort of, I don't want to say a talent or it's just sort of the way that I am. I'm like, I know if something's spelled right or wrong, mm-hmm. but I couldn't tell you why, or I couldn't yeah. tell you why that grammar is wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I think that uh, we do that a lot with communication and we see that with a lot of people, the way they give talks, the way they write docs or whatever. It's just because I haven't really learned because it's a skill. Mm-hmm. And the, what was making me think about this is, is you and I both at, at different times and in slightly different ways took part in a similar, very structured uh, communication course, mm-hmm. right? So um, the uh, there's there's a, a course that I, I, because it was pre-pandemic, had the fortunate ability to take part in it mm-hmm. in real life. And I know Shelby took the class as well, but it was like it, the, the, the course is called Communicate to Influence. Mm-hmm. And I learned so much about how to structure a presentation. And I think for a lot of people that feels like, oh, it's not genuine then or whatever. But it's like, no, you have a plan. Mm-hmm. Because you're trying to communicate a message. And I think that's the thing is anytime we're talking about teaching somebody something, what is that thing? And then have a plan. Don't just because otherwise you just sort of end up with like this brain dump of like, here's the things I know about this thing. And I'm just going to sort of write them out or I'm going to just sort of say them. You know, we have things like that. And to, if you want to do that, the things exist and they're called podcasts, right? That's okay, <laughs> right? You know, or your Twitch stream. But mm-hmm. if you're trying to 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 communicate something really specific, you need a plan and you mm-hmm. need a structure. And and I think it's it's really important. One of the best pieces of feedback I got um, while doing the workshop was um, at one point we were doing an example where it was just like influence somebody to like watch a TV show you like or whatever. And I started just rambling and rambling and rambling about all the cool things. And I managed to fit it into like the five minute limit or whatever. But like the someone was like oh that's like way too much information and i think you know when when i feel insecure about like you know am i um am i the right person to be to be saying this am i like technical enough or do i am i knowledgeable enough or whatever i i I start to like drop like the like stack of books of uh you know information on on someone's desk like look like i can prove it look at all the words i can say about this thing and that doesn't actually influence them or, or help them learn um the, the fire hose doesn't really help people learn and so um it's you know still a challenge for me but but trying to um filter that and and sort of know when to stop talking um is 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 really really um important and i'm 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 a much stronger writer than i am sort of an ad hoc speaker i think because i like sort of edit as i go um and so usually what will happen um, it has happened a bunch of times at, at work where someone will ask me a question. I'll be like, you know, we should have an internal doc about that. And I'll just like jam it out in like half an hour. And now we have an internal doc for that thing. And, and, um, I can link to it in like Slack channels or whatever. Um, versus like if I were to try to explain it over a Zoom call, I, it would just be a mess. Um, and some, you know, the, and having the framework there to, 
anchor like all the points I want to make and and re- remind myself of like the audience and and what I want them to take away from what I'm saying is is, is really important um, and it's really really valuable for me. So my challenge, my, my other challenge is remembering to sit down and actually use it um, after I went through all that training. <laughs> I, I, it was, it was probably at least two years ago that I did that. And the Mm -hmm. amount of times that when I'm writing a talk, I sit down and do the, the methodology Mm -hmm. are countable on one hand. And then I Mm -hmm. get really mad at myself for not doing it because when I do, Mm -hmm. it's so effective, but Mm -hmm. uh, my, my manager even recommended I do it for like, um, submitting CFPs, like before I even write a talk. And I was just like, wow, I never even thought to do that. But that makes perfect sense, especially like if you want to include an outline or whatever. Um, so it makes it makes that process like a, a little bit more work. But I, I think it's um, I think it's worth it because it, it makes me sort of feel more solid going into, you know, writing the talk if it's accepted. Can we think a little bit about because we said we're going to. And, you know, this episode has a title and the title cannot change at all. (laughs) Uh, But we said we're going to talk about learning to learn and learning to teach. Yes. And maybe take a little bit of thought about, like, how do we learn to learn? Because we talked about, like, how we can make the content better and we could teach better. But that's not always the case for Mm -hmm. us, right? If I'm trying Mm -hmm. to learn something, if I want to learn something, what what are some of the ways I can, again, help myself learn how to learn? I think to start is, is learning is figuring out what like your learning styles are. I mean, everyone's sort of, it's a spectrum or, you know, there's a lot out there, but like some people are very visual learners and some people are like auditory learners and some people are like, what is it? Kinesthetic learners. We have to like interact with a thing. Um, when I went back to school for computer science classes, there was a little, um, like questionnaire to, to figure out your learning style. turns out I'm a multimodal learner. It, and that doesn't mean I, I can sort of, take my pick of any one of them means I need to interact with a thing all the different ways before I can understand it. So it takes me like three to four times as long to grok a thing. But when I do, I'm, and and I think this is what's made me like enjoy teaching so much is, is I, I can now like, I have, I have learned it the auditory way and I've learned it the visual way and I've learned it the kinesthetic way and I've learned it sort of the written word way. And, and now I can turn that around and help, teach other people. Um, but it, figuring out what your learning style is. Um, some people can sit and, wa- and like watch a, 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 you know, YouTube video or Twitch stream or whatever. And that like sinks in for them. Some people just need to read all the docs about a thing before they can even start like writing a single line of code or whatever. Um, is it, that helps a lot. Another thing that's really helped me is the book Mindset. Um, which is about developing a growth mindset. Um, and growing up, like I, I, I had such a terrible attitude. I was so hard on myself. Um, uh, you know, every day I like told myself, like, like, you're so stupid. You're so stupid. You're so stupid because I wasn't learning as fast as other people. Um, I, you know, it took me longer and, and, and I didn't, and even just like, I didn't know a thing yet. You know, the, the, how could you not know this thing? Um, which we've, you know, as an industry and as a community, we've gotten a lot better about not having that like gut response, like, oh, you've never heard of this before. Like the XKCD, like, you know, 10,000 people a day learn a thing or, um, we have a much more positive approach to that, I think. And, and we've gotten better about like the gatekeeping and, and the incredulity that, that can sort of trigger, um, you know, negative feelings. If, if you happen to be someone who, you know, the one that, daily 10,000 who hasn't heard a thing yet. But yeah, uh, that positive. Mm-hmm. Oh, just a long mindset. I'm sorry. Don't, yeah. don't want to interrupt, but just uh, if you want to learn more about a growth mindset, but we have the options depending upon your learning style, we'll put mm-hmm. a link to the book in the show notes, but also Sasha Rosenbaum gave a great talk about exactly this mm-hmm. and about the book last week at a meetup. And I know the video is online. So you, you know, if you're someone who will learn about your growth mindset through reading, you can get the book. If you want to listen to someone talk about it, you can watch the talk. Uh, it doesn't address every type of learning style, but it's a couple different ones. But mm-hmm. I think that um, is really key, though, because it can feel like everybody knows this. Like you said, you know, it's like, oh, my God. And then you, you're and this goes a little bit into why psychological safety is so important. Yes, because it should be absolutely OK to just say, hey, I don't know or not even say I don't know, but ask a question that that says you don't know that thing without getting 
made fun of. And I think um, it, it's something uh, that one of the, one of the misconceptions I think about psychological safety is that people read it as, well, that means don't be mean to people, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of subtle things that we can do as well. And, and like one of the examples I've, I've uh, and it's not always about the psychological safety of the person who asked the question, but it's also for the people that see how you answered it. Yes. So I've uh, uh, years ago, you know, in, in the hip chat for our sales engine team, one of my colleagues who's a very, very sharp engineer, you know, it actually doesn't matter if he is or not, but I mean, it was one of those things where, you know, he's, he, he, you know, he had had a problem, you know, was trying to figure out why something wasn't working and he had left off a flag on the SSH command mm-hmm. and uh, actually had capitalized the P instead of lowercase or something like that. And so I, mm-hmm. when he, you know, when we figured that out and then I was like, oh man, I'm like, how do you even DevOps when you don't know that? And it was, we, he and I are great friends mm-hmm. and it was friendly ribbing. Mm-hmm. But the message to everybody mm-hmm. else reading that was, if you make a mistake, Matt will make fun of you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's, mm-hmm. I, and I've, I've really tried to take that to heart about thinking about, and so much of the stuff that we do, we need to be thinking about the people who are listening, not the people we are talking to. Mm-hmm. So when, when people are asking these questions, you want them to feel comfortable asking, but also understand the way that you answer it is for the benefit of other people, you know, cause then that can see that if someone can ask that question and, and the response is sure, let me tell you, no problem. Then I can be mm-hmm. like, okay, cool. I'm in a group or in a setting where it's okay to not know. Cause I'll tell mm-hmm. you something. Reality is it's always okay to not know. Yes. You know what I mean? But it can feel mm-hmm. like it's not based on how we interact with each other. Mm-hmm. That, that was another thing that I was just very, very lucky to encounter um, just my first year of working in software, because um, I was working on this Python library where um, our users are like PhD level, literal rocket scientists, right? Like aerospace engineers and stuff, but they're not Python experts. They're not software engineers. Um, and so we're just like, I helped develop a workshop to like teach them how to use the library, um, which was, you know, sort of like the API um for this GUI tool that they're used to using. And so it's like, I had to learn all the, all of the domain knowledge about satellites or whatever, but they had to learn like, you know, why do these parameters go here? Um, and, and what are the, the data types and things like that? And so, um, you know, encountering those questions very early on where it's, um, the sort of thing that I, you know, as the, the most junior person in the room was uniquely qualified to answer, um, it, it really, really helped me just like everybody has net gaps in their knowledge. So it's sort of that thing we talked about in the beginning, like there is no linear knowledge. There's no linear path to expert and everybody has gaps and everybody makes little mistakes and everybody has questions. Um, another thing that happened recently is, is one of our platform engineers at Honeycomb and I were like talking, um, and, and I, I said something about just like, like, I know I, I sort of get the distributed column store thing, but I also don't really get the distributed column store thing. And he's like, oh, you're not alone. I'm like, you're, you're, you're a platform engineer. Like you run our platform. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, you know, and, and being, you know, being able to talk to people and, and, uh, like who I, I think it's just like, well, you, you, you know, you have a handle on this. And it turns out like you don't. And I, I think that's something that um, as when you're, when you're in a senior role or even sort of like mid-level senior um, or just in a vocal like public role, like I am um, talking about sharing those, those vulnerable um, like knowledge gaps and, and those vulnerable moments I think can be really, really, really helpful. Um, and that's specifically why I go and, and I write a blog post about like, I broke the DNS on my Hugo site um, because DNS is hard and weird and very hard for me to test. And I don't really grok it. Um, you know, at one point I was like, take away my DevOps card. Um, but like, you know, I, and I, I, I'm also, I tend to very publicly like, like sort of beat myself up. Oh, I'm not as experienced as other people. Um, and so that's something I'm trying to get over too, is just like, you know, the, 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 the knowledge I have and the learning I'm doing and the learning I'm trying to do in public a little bit where I try and reason about what, you know, is the difference between a regular database and a column store. Um, and 
you know, asking questions out loud and things like that. Um, I think, you know, it's how it's literally how I learn. I need to talk, talk about it and I need to like think out loud and, and, you know, write it and draw pictures and all of that. Um, so I, I try and I try and I don't know, not even like on purpose to, to create like a more welcoming environment or whatever, because it's literally like this is I just have to tweet about things in order to make sense of it. But um, I hope that has sort of like a side effect of, of making that um, a more welcoming environment and for, for other people to learn stuff that they haven't learned before. Um, you know, it's cool. Um, I, ha- I, I had um, a guest blogger on the Honeycomb site a while back who worked in tech for 25 years and never worked on a web service. And so he had to just learn web services from scratch. Um, and so all this stuff that like, I can now take for granted because I've been living in that space for a little, for a couple of years now is brand new to him. Um, and, and, you know, it's, start, and, and that's exactly the, the, the thing where it's like when you're, when you're um, from the, the senior perspective and the, and the teaching perspective um, is when you make things accessible to, you know, early career people and junior people and, um, career changers and, and everyone sort of learning from scratch, you also make it more accessible to the people who are joining a new project or changing domains or, or whatever. Um, so, but on the learning side, cause I do, I, I really, I want, there's, there's tons of advice, right? There's, you, you, you search like, you know, um, like strategies for, for learning and things like that. And, um, you know, you ask a dozen people and you get a dozen different pieces of advice. Um, there's there's a lot of advice about, you know, blogging as you learn or keeping a wiki um, or, you know, all of that stuff. And I think there's a lot of pressure um, to learn in public or to, to sort of have like artifacts, deliverables almost. Another book I'm going to recommend is called The Lichtenbergian. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's basically about procrastinating as productivity, um, which is great for me because I am a lifelong procrastinator and I think a lot of people can relate to that. But it also talks about abortive attempts where um, you try a thing and you don't complete it. Um, and I, I know a few people who are like staunch completionists and they can't move on to the next task or the next project until they finish the current one. But I think... I think just embracing that, like, you're going to have a couple dozen, maybe, or, you know, a handful or whatever, you're going to have half finished projects, or you're going to have repos where you open the repo because you thought of a really cool name for a project and it has a readme and nothing else. And I think embracing those abortive attempts is also really, really important for learning and for sort of the psychological safety. Um if if I if I beat myself up for every blog post I started writing and didn't publish, like, I would, you know, I'd be like black and blue. Uh, <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't be able to walk because it's just, there's so, there's so many cool ideas and we have so many cool ideas um, and not all of them pan out um, and not all of them become like published, completed portfolio projects. Um, and we still learn from just like noodling over the ideas. And so I think that's a thing where, I, you know, from the learner perspective, um, you know, I, I even have like a process where um, when I'm learning a code base, like I go in and because I have to interact with things, you know, the way I the way I read, I sort of circle and underline or sometimes it'll just like edit a Google Doc um, because it's the only way for me to like read the the content. Um, and I do the same thing with code. I'll go in and I'll start refactoring um, and I'll start like changing names um, just to see the ripple effects of that. And I'll end up breaking things. Uh, but it'll teach me about the code base. Um, and so then I just like clear my index and, oh, you know, make a new branch and then I'll do my real work. Um, and, and so those, those sorts of things that we don't, we don't see that process and, and we, we don't see all the successful people's abortive attempts because they're, you know, collecting dust in some private repos, um, or some local branches or whatever. Um, and so those sorts of things, you know, uh, when you're a learner, to sort of embrace that. And when you're, when you're trying to make it the environment more conducive to learning, maybe being a little bit more public about that. I like that idea about, about learning in public. And I think, mm-hmm. I mean, we're in a, in a way that's safe. Cause I, 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 I think something that, that, that bears visiting 
is a lot of this is not necessarily going to come with the same risk profile for everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so even, even the learning in public kind of yes. a thing where mm-hmm. for some people I've seen great examples of someone who, um, so Annie Hedgepith, who, you know, entered the tech industry from a completely different career path. And she took on learning a fairly, at the time, fairly obscure bit of, of chef technology and she learned in public. She blogged about what she did. And, and actually her blogs on learning inspect for, I don't know about now, but for a very long time were linked to from the product page as the documentation for the product because it was the best written stuff and it was all just from her learning. So what the reason I'm bringing this up is that, uh, and it's not to say that there was a different risk for that, but it can be if you're trying to get started and you're trying to... um it can feel like a risk profile to kind of admit you don't know something in a public way, right? If, if you're, you're, you know, so that, that, that takes a fair amount. It's, it's one thing for someone who's kind of already feels pretty comfortable in things to be like, yeah, I'll figure this out because no one's going to think I'm less than because I don't know that whether or not people really think that or not, but it might feel that way to you. And, and also we talked about, you know, learning from experience and, I what it made me think of a little bit um, when you talk about that risk profile and the ability to do that. I I have talked a lot before about how I learned from doing. I'm not classically trained, if you will. You know, I don't have a degree and all this stuff. And Scott Hanselman said something a few years ago that I heard that really put that in perspective to me, which is someone who doesn't look like me would not have had the same opportunity to not really know what they were doing, but still get a chance to do stuff. I mean, the best example outside of tech is the showrunners for Game of Thrones who've made big deals out of the fact that they've never run a show before and HBO gave them Game of Thrones. And you're like, oh my God, you know, what what privilege. And and not to say that it's at that level for me, but yeah, I've, I was given a lot of responsibility that was, was unearned where I know someone who was under index would have to prove a lot more. And the reason I'm putting that qualification in front of that is that I think about where I learned so much. I, I've, I've made the jokes that like I had, there's this one system integrator I worked for early in my career. And I, I, I look back at my resume, I'm like, I can't believe I only worked there for four months because I feel like I learned more in those four months than I have in the decades since then. But because it would be stuff like my boss would come to me and say, hey, do you know what a VPN is? And just for context, this was like circa 1998. And I was like, yeah, I think I read an article about it the other day. He goes, oh, I told Stone Container you could put one in tomorrow. So now I have to go do that. And and I think we've had those, a lot of people have had those experiences of like, you you have to deliver on something you don't know, and you will learn it from doing that. Uh, and that can be a powerful way to learn, but also, again, comes at a different risk profile, depending upon where you are in your career, who you are. And I think that's something we need to keep into account. And also just to be exceptionally clear, I do not want to take credit for bringing this up because Shelby wrote this in the notes and I wanted us to get there. So. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, I'm glad you did though, because I, I, um, like I said, I tend to sort of fill in a lot of words and not always get to all the points I want to make. And which is kind of why we make notes. But anyway, um, I, I do, I think a lot about, um, the, the, the times I've gotten lucky in my career. Um, and it's been, you know, the times that people have stuck their neck out for me, gone to bat for me, um, given me a chance, like, um, you know, I, I got put in charge of this, this really big and challenging project, um, the first day of my second internship, um, literally because I have a linguistics degree and it was, and, like the the project the um project lead came up to me and was like oh you're the linguist do you want to write a translator and I was like I don't know what that means but I'll guess I'll f- have to figure it out and it was turns out it's like compiler theory stuff that I had never touched before in my one year of of CS studies um and I learned so much and I also dropped the ball in a lot of ways and and it's this um and maybe it's something that. You know, the most junior person, the intern shouldn't have been given that entire project. But at the same time, it's like I was able to spin that um, the the learning and the work that I did in in positive ways that not everybody would have been able to do that and and been believed. Right. Um, 
the, you know, I'm white, I'm relatively tall. Um, I'm a native English speaker. I'm U.S. citizen. Like I have all of these sort of intersecting, um, appearance things and, and, and paper things that lend me credibility. Um, even like, even if I don't have like the, the, you know, uh, track record and the experience and stuff. And, and so I think about, you know, the first few years of my career um, and it, it can, it can go sort of in the extreme opposite direction where like, I've been called out like, gosh, you have some really bad imposter syndrome. Um, and, and so now I'm learning like how to, how to be- talk about it and balance it where it's like, you know, I'm, I'm aware of my gaps and I'm aware of the, the areas the I'm aware of the known unknowns to, to you know, use honeycomb, language um but um at the same time like i i have done stuff that's valuable and and i'm happy with with the the impact i've had you know in in that work um and so but but yeah like not everybody is read the same way um and not everybody comes out the gate with the same sort of i don't want to say level of credibility because that's not what it is but and and so there's there's definitely a risk to like you know, being public about your knowledge gaps. Um, there's a risk to the, the, you know, you're not a senior engineer until you break production because breaking production, um, you know, some people get punished more than others just as, as a, um, like we see it, you know, we can point to examples of that. Um, people get punished more than others for, um, bringing up organizational issues, right? Like, like, hey, the, the things you're talking about in your top level company OKRs don't map to the, the day-to-day boots on the ground work that um, we care about, you know, you're, and, and so bringing, bringing that stuff up that it's, there's, there's not an equivalent like psychological safety there. Um, and so that's something I think as a community, we try to talk about, um, but it's, and it's something that, you know, I say all this stuff and I, I feel very, unqualified to make a difference there. Um, I, or like I'm in a position to have a positive impact there and I, I want to do a good job and I know that, um, I could be doing more. So, so that's the sort of thing that, you know, I talk about it because I care. And, and I also know that like, I may be like ineffectual in, in some of some ways I'm not having as positive an impact as, as I would like. So just, you know, just want to acknowledge all of that. And like, you know, it's more than a disclaimer. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's something that, you know, we need to discuss and share as an industry. The, the, what is it like move fast and break things doesn't work for everybody. There's a lot of unintentional consequences to to advice and approaches that we take, and it's it's hard. And words are hard, and messages are hard, and even the jokes that we make and the shit posts we put on Twitter and things like that. Mm-hmm. I've been I've been trying to to be more cognizant around around where that comes and how we can can be more uh, inclusive and welcoming of people um, who have a different. Mm-hmm. Uh, different path that, that got us, got them to, to where they are. It's, and I'm glad, I'm glad that like, like senior people and white men and, and people not, you know, in, in that, in minoritized groups are, are bringing that up because when you are the token woman or the token black person or the token black woman on a team and, and you bring up like, Hey, that wasn't a really good joke. Like, you know, it might, like make someone feel bad, you are now the the SJW, right? The the social justice warrior. You're now the the you're you're the you're ruining people's fun or whatever. Um and, and so in that way, like there's also sort of the disproportionate like punishment for um you know under indexed and minoritized people even trying to cre- create more psychological safety and create a healthier community, the d- bringing that up um and, and criticizing the status quo has a greater punishment, more backlash on people who don't fit certain molds. And so, um, so yeah, so I implore, you know, when, when you, you know, fit the, the cookie cutter tech person um, mold that it, it, it does have a, it, it takes the burden off of, of those of us who are more impacted um, by that sort of 
negativity or that that sort of psychological lack of safety, lack of psychological safety words. Um, so thank you, you know, and keep doing it. And, and all of you, I know, you know, there's, there's a ton of, of people who have been doing it. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, because I've, I've been the, the, I've been that person. I've been the like, Hey, I wish you wouldn't use that word. Um, and now I am the, the mom or whatever. I'm the, the jerk. Like I'm the, I'm ruining everybody's fun and it's not a good feeling. And it makes it hard to feel welcome on a team. And I think that's a, a good way for us to kind of wrap up there. Obviously, we have a lot more we could be talking about, and it wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't threaten to have a follow-up episode that we will probably never get around to doing. But, you know, we might. Remind us. Send us on Twitter and say we got more to talk about. But uh, before we kind of go into our wrap-up, uh, Shelby, is there anything... You know, we used to say, like, where can people see, like, if we, but we aren't traveling as much, but we have virtual things. Anything uh, you've got upcoming uh, that um, you want to plug? I feel like now I want to be a late night talk show host. Be like, what do you, what do you got to plug? You know? Yeah, I have a couple events in February that I'm participating in. I'll be um, speaking at Developer Week. And um, also there's a InfoQ panel. Um, that's all just work stuff. Um reach out and on Twitter or whatever. And uh, I'd, I'd love to hear from people because it's a really cool world. And it's a really cool community. Also, um, well, you can, uh, you can find Shelby's Twitter. If you go to the show notes for this episode at arrested slash learning to learn, we'll have links to a bunch of the other things that we mentioned but also, uh, pretty excited to tell everyone, uh, not that I have anything directly to do with this event, except that I think it's great. But one of my absolute, I shouldn't say one of my, at my favorite uh, event of last year, Deserted Island DevOps, is coming back again this year. It'll be April 30th. But the CFP is open right now. So if you go to desertedisland.club, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes as well, you can submit for the CFP and... If you are an underrepresented person who doesn't happen to have a Nintendo Switch or a copy of Animal Crossing, which is needed, there are scholarships available uh, to get some more diverse voices into this event. But yeah, it was super fun. uh, And even if you aren't into Nintendo or anything like that, you want to check this event out. It was the best run virtual event of all of 2020. And I have high hopes that... uh, Austin and the crew will do it again. You can uh, go to ArrestedDevOps.com slash iTunes and leave us a review in the iTunes store, which I guess isn't called that anymore, but I refuse to change my redirect on the website. It is going to be that. But the reviews actually, they they do help other people find the show. So that's great. And uh, you never know, we might read your review uh, on the air. Probably not, but we might. And uh, you can also find Arrested DevOps on Spotify and iHeartRadio if uh, that's how you like to listen to podcasts, because people do. Actually, you can pretty much find Arrested DevOps anywhere that fine and less fine podcasts are available. Shelby, thank you so much for joining me for a really great conversation today. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. So fun. This is Arrested DevOps. And remember, there's always DevOps. In the banana stand. (laughs) 